0: Welcome back to Radio X Off the Record, where we give you the latest in shark news from NSU's very own faculty and students. This week, we're speaking with NSU Psych Professor Dr. Sternglantz on how quarantine has affected social interaction. We'll also be giving you a rundown on popular Doja Cat single, Say So, featuring Nicki Minaj on music release Radar, before diving into an exclusive interview with local artist Josiah Gray. As previously mentioned, our Shark News special guest this week will be none other than social psychologist Dr. Wayland Sterngleis from Nova Southeast University. Although he is the Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience, this week we're going to be picking his brain about the social science behind the COVID-19 pandemic and the psychological effects related to self-quarantine. To start off, I want to know how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you both personally and professionally?
1: Thank you for having me. And the COVID-19 pandemic has definitely affected me, just as it's affected everyone else, I think. So personally, of course, we're all affected by anxiety about COVID-19 itself, as well as all the ramifications of everything being closed. Our job, our school, our, you know, restaurants, grocery stores, et cetera, and all the inherent difficulties there. So I think it's affected me in a way that's pretty similar to how it's affected everyone else. Probably one thing that made it particularly difficult for me is that... I have a nine-year-old and a three-year-old and three-year-olds are really at uh, just the wrong age for a pandemic because uh, they're old enough that they want to you know go off and explore and play but they're young enough that they don't really understand why they can't go to their favorite playground, their preschool and so on. so it's definitely a lot of work balancing my work and and you know having kids at home full- time and also of course naturally I'm worried about coronavirus itself. I worry about you know my family, my friends I have you know 80 year old parents who are very concerned Concerned about catching it, and so on, uh, just as I'm sure many other people do.
0: Of course, during these times, it's important not only for everyone to come together, but also understanding that there are a lot of difficulties, which kind of leads me into my next question. What psychological effects do you believe this pandemic has been having on the community, and do you think there will be ramifications post-quarantine?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that it had a number of different psychological effects, and it will be interesting to see how long-lasting those effects are post-quarantine. I'm curious to know if we have some sort of long-term psychological effects in terms of people's behaviors and thought processes. Probably the biggest effects that we see now is people have a lot of anxiety and worry, first of all, about coronavirus itself, of course, uh, and secondly, about the effect on the economy. A lot of people are worried about their jobs. People are, you know, very anxious and going stir crazy, having to stay at home all the time. So I think that, you know, you see just these huge, huge increases in anxiety and worry and probably, you know, a lot of people who are having trouble dealing with that, you know, not finding easy ways to de-stress, to get some alone time. And so that's incredibly stressful. Um, I could also talk, if you like, a little bit about, you know, why some people might choose to sort of follow the rules more than others. So, you know, for example, rules about social distancing and so on. I think it's been really interesting from a social psychological perspective to see how some people really care about, you know, following the social distancing rules and staying six feet away from each other, wearing masks, and so on. Whereas other people, especially in the earlier part of the pandemic, really wanted to defy those rules and saw them as unnecessary and annoying. So, you know, I think we've all seen the infamous videos of the spring breakers, you know, going to the beach and having huge parties and kind of defying the rules there. Some of them probably later came to regret that. So I think that the interesting thing about altruistic behavior, because in many ways, you know, especially earlier in the crisis, I think people saw the need to remain socially distanced as kind of an altruistic behavior. You know, there were some young people who weren't really worried about getting coronavirus themselves, but at the same time, they thought, well, this is good for a society. Maybe it's good for older people, but, you know, it's not so good for me. And so I think what comes into play there is this sort of, you know, decision about whether do you behave in a way that's good for society or do you behave in a way that's good for yourself? And one of the primary things that influences whether or not people are going to behave altruistically is... Social norms. So if you're around a lot of other people who are behaving altruistically, then the pressure is on for you to behave altruistically as well. But if you're surrounded by a lot of other people who say, oh, no, screw this, come on, let's just go have some fun. Well, then you're going to follow that social norm. The other thing, too, is to keep in mind research on how fear will affect persuasive messages. So, you know, if you're trying to persuade people to do something, whether it's stay socially distanced or don't smoke because it can cause cancer, whatever it is, whatever sort of positive message you're trying to persuade people, it's tricky because you need to make people a little bit afraid Sense that you need to convince them that, you know, what they're doing could be bad for their health or bad for society as a, as a whole. However, if you make people too afraid, then they sort of shut down and, and, and just don't want to hear the message and just ignore it. So that's why, for example, a lot of anti-smoking messages don't work very well. Because if you just sort of show people pictures of, you know, horribly blackened lungs uh, from lung cancer and that kind of thing, a lot of the times people will just be like, oh, that's disgusting and just want to shut it off. But they won't really want to think that it applies to them. It's just too too scary. So if you're going to try to convince people to change their behavior in a way that's that's difficult or inconvenient for them, you have to make people a little bit afraid of the consequences, but you also have to provide a very clear and manageable way to reduce that fear. So you can't just say, for example, don't smoke, you have to sort of provide some information about, well, here's how you can quit smoking. And you know, here's something that can help you with this. Likewise, you know, with social distancing, it helps if you can kind of persuade people, okay, here's, you know, some alternatives, you can talk to people online, here's ways that you can maintain some of your general quality of life, if you freak people out, but don't provide a clear way to to get them to do what you want them to do, then they're probably going to ignore the persuasive message. So anyway, that's just a little bit about the social psychology of why people will or will not behave altruistically.
0: I find that incredibly interesting, especially seeing it from a more social psych perspective. And not only are you a social psychologist, but you're also a professor. So what do you believe has been the biggest stressor college educators have faced since the pandemic has began?
1: So in addition to the, you know, kind of stresses that everyone else has, I think, you know, worrying about one's family, worrying about all the changes in one's life. Some stressors that are specific to college educators are worrying about how are we going to teach our classes, how are we going to maintain good educational practices? And a lot of us are worried also about our students. You know, some of us have had students who have very difficult family situations. Maybe someone is sick in their family or, you know, they're having economic difficulties because of the economic slowdown due to all this and so on. So I think a lot of us have been worried about our students and worried about how we can properly educate our students. I know a lot of us in my department, a lot of the professors have kind of uh, you know, griped over email and over Zoom about all the different difficulties of learning to teach online, especially those people who don't normally teach online classes, you know, difficulties of using Zoom and so on. Another aspect that we found difficult is a lot of students don't realize this, but teaching is just one part of our job. The other part of our job, probably an equally large part of our job, is conducting research. So for many of us, our research labs have essentially been shut down. Those of us who are doing research with human participants, obviously we can't have people coming into the lab to participate in our studies anymore. We have difficulty even getting into the office to do data analysis and so on. You know, basically, I think we're worried about our teaching practices, we're worried about our students, and we're worried about a a complete halt almost to our research, in addition to all the other worries that I think the rest of us have as well.
0: This semester has definitely been a learning curve for both students as well as professors. And on the topic of colleges, there are many universities and businesses that are steadily reopening as a part of phase one. What are your thoughts on that exactly?
1: Yeah, that's a really difficult question. It's a good question and it's it's hard to answer. The reopening of schools and businesses is an incredibly controversial issue, and these days it's even become heavily politicized since some people on the more conservative end of the spectrum, and particularly President Donald Trump, seem to be pushing for earlier reopenings than some people on the more liberal end of the spectrum there. So I think what I would say about that is we really have to follow the science. We have to listen to epidemiologists and other scientists and what they say about when it's safe to reopen reopen and how we can reopen, even though I personally just can't wait for things to reopen, especially schools. I will say businesses, sure, but for me having young kids at home, I just can't wait for schools to be open. Nevertheless, I think we really have to wait until the people who are professionals in this field say it's safe. Otherwise, we're just going to see a big reoccurrence of the virus, probably you know, with even more people getting infected. And So that would obviously be a horrible repercussion. But yeah, bottom line, listen to the science.
0: And in your opinion, as a psychologist, What research do you believe is essential to examine during or post the coronavirus pandemic?
1: Well, so some of this I've probably already addressed. I think that we can look at research on persuasion and what makes people more or less likely to be persuaded to follow the rules. I think we also need to look at ways of improving the lives, especially because I don't think that the coronavirus affects everyone equally. People who, in many ways, were in the worst situation before the coronavirus hit, probably they've been hit even harder could because these are people who can't afford help with childcare, who might have, for example, people who have children with special needs, people who just don't have the economic means to deal with all this, people who've lost their jobs. Those people are sort of being hit doubly hard. They're having to worry about all those things. And then they're also having to deal with all the stuff that the rest of us have to deal with, you know, having to do work and childcare or having to, you know, everything closed and not being able to get anything done. So I think because of that, there's probably an incredible amount of anxiety just sort of general life difficulties that a lot of people are suffering from. So I think that it's absolutely important that we reach those people and give them the help that they need. And I think that that's probably incredibly difficult to organize, especially during a pandemic when we can't reach people in person. So it's important, I think, to find the best practices for doing that.
0: I think that's a great point that you brought up. And in that case, do you suppose that social interactions with others will decrease post-quarantine or do you believe they will drastically increase?
1: I think that I could see arguments for other side, really. I could definitely see that post-quarantine, we might see a lot of a big sort of release where people suddenly feel free to interact socially, to stand close to each other, to hug, to celebrate together in large crowds. And so probably there will be some people who will really revel in doing those kinds of things. At the same time, over the long term, I could see how certain kinds of social practices might decrease. People might be a little bit more nervous about gathering in large crowds, going to concerts, going to movies and so on. People might worry about touching others as much. One thing I've speculated about is whether handshakes are going to change. Epidemiologists have said for a long time that there's really no need for shaking hands. And if we did away with it, we probably have a lot less spread of a lot of diseases like colds and flus. So I wonder if that will decrease. So yeah, so I could see probably some increase in certain kinds of social activities as people sort of feel the relief post-quarantine. But I wonder if over the long term, there might be, at least among some people, less gathering in large crowds and touching each other.
0: And you mentioned earlier about the building anxiety that this pandemic is bringing. Do you think that this pandemic will leave people experiencing more paranoia towards social interaction?
1: Yes, I think it's definitely possible that some people will be a little bit paranoid over the long term about gathering in large crowds or about touching each other unnecessarily. At the same time, I think that over time, assuming let's, I'm talking long term now, so after we found a vaccine, I think that people will become gradually less and less concerned about this and less paranoid, I guess. So, you know, the biggest event in my life that would be somewhat similar to this in scope was 9-11. So, you know, I was in graduate school, I was in, you know, not much older than the college students at Nova. I was in my early 20s when 9-11 occurred. And I saw how in the months and years shortly afterwards, people were very paranoid and very worried about terrorist attacks. But, you know, gradually that worry kind of dissipates over time as it becomes, you know, more and more part of history and less and less part of the present. So I imagine we'll see something kind of similar where over time, paranoia toward social interaction will probably dissipate.
0: And how do you suspect the Stay at Home Act and self-quarantine has affected interpersonal communication?
1: I think because people are stuck at home, it probably exacerbates any effects of things that are going on within the home. So if people were stuck in, you know, sort of bad relationships before, then those relationships might really be in trouble now that they're having to be at home with each other all the time. And at the same time, I think it's probably made it so that, you know, people, many people become lonely as they can't uh, go out and interact with the community in the way that they normally would. And so probably one of the best things that people can do is stay in touch with each other. You know, in general, there's a lot of research showing that social interaction is essential for combating uh, depression and anxiety. You know, just sort of getting together with friends is really a good thing. And even though people can't do that physically, luckily we have the electronic means to simulate it, you know, through Zoom and other similar venues. So I think that probably there are some people who are experiencing loneliness and anxiety and interacting online is probably a great remedy for that.
0: And of course, my last question would have to be, how would you advise families and students to address any mental health concerns they may have due to the virus?
1: As I mentioned earlier, people probably do have a lot of mental health concerns, and especially people who probably had mental health issues earlier, and especially people who are economically disadvantaged, those people are probably being hurt much more than the norm. And so it's particularly critical that we try to help them now. I think one thing that people can do is engage in social interaction. There's just so much research are showing that that social interaction is largely beneficial. And it has to be sort of active social interaction. So if you're just going onto Facebook and looking at other people's posts, but not interacting with other people, there's some research showing that can actually make people more depressed. But if you're actually actively interacting with people, research seems to show that's good for our mental health by and large. And whether we're talking about introverts or extroverts, we all kind of need some social interaction. And then of course, the other thing that some people might need is to talk to a therapist or other kind of mental health professional, especially people who are experiencing severe depression and anxiety and so on. So I think it's absolutely critical that we have these telehealth resources where people can call or Zoom the mental health professional. And I know that there are some resources like that out there. I, I hope that they make those even more available and accessible to people. We definitely don't want to shortchange that during this pandemic.
0: Yes, we definitely want to make sure that all those who are facing any mental health concerns to be able to reach out. And telehealth has been making that very widely accessible. But thank you so much, Dr. for for taking the time to speak with me and providing us with more insight on the psychology surrounding the pandemic. And we hope that you stay safe during these challenging times. And we look forward to seeing you around campus in the fall.
1: My pleasure. And I hope you stay safe as well. And I hope everyone out there stays safe.
0: And now for Music Release Radar, we'll be giving you all the details on the hit Doja Cat remix, Say So, featuring Nicki Minaj. For those of you not familiar with Doja Cat, she's a Los Angeles rapper who quickly became an internet sensation with her song Say So going viral on TikTok. But she's also performed on the Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, and you might even recognize her music from the Birds of Crave movie soundtrack. The R&B and soul hit has given rising star Doja Cat her first chart topper in the Billboard Hot 100 around May 1st. Although it's no longer number one, it's still standing strong, currently at number two behind Stuck With You.
2: Both artists have topped the Billboard's Hot 100 for the first time in their career with this new remix track. Yet the remix featuring Nicki Minaj apparently had two versions, and the unofficial track had been circling the internet. Both artists had to take to social media to announce their official release of the Say So remix, earlier this month. The song holds a relatable message about the internal dialogue and acknowledging certain feelings. The lyrics, why don't you say so, focus on Doja Cat knowing that she may have feelings for someone she has to just admit to herself, which then lends to the struggle of not wanting to be quote unquote played, so to speak. The addition of Nicki Minaj on the track gives the song some added rap verses that stay true to Nicki Minaj's career as an artist. As some lyrics pay an homage to her former work, overall this newly released version of Say So by Doja Cat Helps expand this song's audience as well as highlighting both herself and Nicki's relevance in the music industry today. Speaking of hip-hop, on this episode of Radio X Off The Record, we have with us local hip-hop artist who goes by the name of Josiah Gray. He is from South Florida and is a current rapper, songwriter, producer, and a little bit of a singer. His music ranges from elements of many different genres incorporated into his modern hip-hop and rap. Radio X presents this episode's local artist interview.
3: Hi, yeah, my name is Josiah Gray. I'm 19. I'm from Miami.
2: As a young artist, when did your interest in music come about?
3: My interest for music came about when I was like 12. Yeah, like on um, my middle school years is when I started. Become- I started off as a DJ, then I got into production, and then after that, slowly, then I started like catching on into the rapping. And I just decided to do all of it.
2: From being a DJ to then later getting into rap, when did you realize that this love of music could be turned into a career?
3: Well. When it really hit me that I wanted to like pursue it as a career was when I, start, when I started like getting into rapping, when I started doing my own lyrics and stuff. That's when it really hit me that this is what I wanted to do because I felt like I had the potential to actually grow into a bigger artist.
2: Speaking of growing as an artist, you've recently released a track called Keep Going in collaboration with True K. How did this collaboration come about?
3: Well, the collaboration came about when I made the beat, I was looking through a couple samples and then I was, I I always wanted to make like something like inspirational and it just, it it came to me, it felt like it was like the right beat to go with, so I just took off from there and then I sent him the track we went off the vibe, like first it was just gonna be me on the song but uh, I went to the studio with True K and then he was like, hey you should do the hook like this and I thought I was like, oh why don't I just add him onto the song too, so he told me a different way to make the hook and stuff and we just went from it with the, from
2: there. Considering the fact that you sent him the beat and and work together on the song. Did you guys happen to know each other before the collaboration? Or was it that music brought you guys together?
3: Well, the funny part was that we went to the same high school, but we really didn't talk much till like after I graduated. I guess you can say music was like the main factor in that.
2: That goes to show the importance of connections and just everyone that you meet throughout your life, basically. As far as the song, where would you say the concept of the song came from?
3: Well, the concept changed like around three times because uh, I had different ideas for the song. Like at first, the song was supposed to just be about like reminiscing about your old days, your memories and stuff, you know, growing up. But then we were getting close to like this whole pandemic just starting and everything. And it just hit me that like, oh, we should do something for the people. So I just kind of Shifted my attention towards that and changed the concept of the song and it just stuck because it sounded better than the first take and then I had to switch up the lyrics a little bit a couple times but on that last take which was keep going that's how it came about with uh, just having to push a motivational message for what's going on right now.
0: Since you
2: took the time to mention the virus how are you currently dealing with the virus and then also the production of your music since things are kind of now distanced to keep the virus from spreading?
3: Well the virus has affected a lot to be honest because well I was I was working so to- to support my music so that kind of got put on hold at the moment i haven't been able to really go to the studio but i did finish my album which should be coming out i hope this year if everything gets on track so uh, i just need my engineer to work on it and stuff but yeah right now due to the, the pandemic everything has been put like not on hold but it's been slowed down a lot i guess i'm not the only one who's affected by that
2: sadly that does happen to be the case for many people nowadays and you mentioned for you as an artist in particular it has affected certain aspects would that affect in a way the release of your music or anything like that what can our listeners expect to still hear from you?
3: Well right now I have my single out keep going on all platforms is if you have Spotify, Apple Music Amazon Music anything of that I'm I'm on everywhere just look me up this I agree but I do have an album coming out which hopefully it comes out this year because everything with the pandemic happening has slowed things down a bit but I do have uh, my album my debut album coming out called The Blessing Money Can't Buy which if everything goes right should be coming out September so that's what I'm shooting for
2: Since you brought up the album what would you say was the purpose behind your first album?
3: been dropping little songs here and there but I haven't really introduced myself so it's just like this album is going to be really everybody getting to know me who I am as a person it's just like my introduction to the whole, to the whole industry and stuff like that so that's what you're really going to find in that album just myself who I am everything that I've gone through so far and what I probably have to come see this is my first year actually coming out into Uh, into actually releasing music for real for real. So basically, I don't know. I just have a have a lot to offer to the game, and it's um, not specifically a new sound, but an evolving sound that I'm pretty sure that it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna do a little impact in the game. So that's all I have to say. I have something I guess new to bring to the table. So that's really what I'm going for in that in that album.
2: You mentioned having an evolving sound. What would you, as an artist, define to be an evolving sound?
3: It's basically evolving because I'm I'm really what you're gonna notice a lot of my sounds. I'm really big on uh, combining genres. So um, well, another genre that I like to mess with a lot that I didn't mention with is uh, rock. So I have, I have a rock song on my album, which is the ending song. But it isn't much as like that new rock that you expect, like that 90s Linkin Park vibe. I'm really into like old school, 70s, like psychedelic rock. So it's just like, I'm trying to bring back that sound with a twist. So that's expect a lot of like retro sounds, but, you know, modernized to art, to what we're doing now. So just, just have a whole bunch of ideas that I've put together.
2: That's pretty interesting how you're able to incorporate that rock into the modern hip-hop that you are predominantly known for. It's cool how you can mix these genres together. Um, aside from that, is there any advice that you'd like to give to incoming artists or aspiring artists on how to go about becoming one?
3: What I advise a whole bunch of new upcoming artists to do is really try to do everything on your own. Don't really rely on a lot of people to, like, to engineer you or make your own, like, beats and production because knowing to do a lot nowadays is really helpful. And it's like, I kind of had to learn on the hard way. That's why I produce my own beats. Well, I mainly produce my own beats because if I have an idea in my head, I really, I want to be able to bring it onto the table rather than me having to, uh, to try to explain something to someone and I don't even know if they're going to understand me correctly. So that's why at least I myself produce. But I really recommend it for a lot of other artists to be a lot of hands-on with their music because if you're depending on somebody else to do like what you want to do, it's at the end of the day, you're, you're going to be stuck depending on them and that's not something you really want, you know? So, you know, uh, learn a lot before you decide to to go ahead and take a deal or sign a contract learn and just be smart about your choices don't do things like just impulsively that's all of. that's the basic the basic of it all be self-dependent don't depend a lot on other people
2: that's actually some great advice Josiah thank you so much for taking the time to let us interview you if you'd like to leave our listeners with any last words or maybe some information on where they could find your music
3: well my name is Josiah Gray I have an album coming out this year can't really say the date yet because that's not confirmed but be on the lookout my single Keep Going is I Don't Know platforms right now youtube spotify apple music anything you want so yeah thank you
2: once again thank you so much josiah for joining us now for dj frank to give us this week's top artist.
1: hello everybody this is dj frank we would like to give a special thanks to cosign true panther and eqt records for sending us jonah Malono's latest album gerd The album includes tracks like The Low, which has a DJ Mac feel with a beat that DJ Twi'lek would approve. Be sure to check out this track along with his single 1949 on Radio X's Spotify account at NSU Radio X and our Discover Weekly playlist.
2: Unfortunately, that's it for this week, but tune back in next Friday for another exciting episode of Radio X Off the Record podcast, where we delve into the mind of clinical psychologist Dr. Burns, and you won't want to miss our personal interview with local NSU student r and artist Damaris Augustine. As always, follow us on social media at NSU Radio X on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Spotify to put a face to all the names we've mentioned, as well as Radio X's weekly updates.